My name is Logan. I'm a pastor of a sister uh, church of yours in Park Slope, and it's great to be back with you today. Uh, we are in a series where we are looking at the topic of shame. And I realize that shame is not one of those topics that we talk about that's fun. It's not a topic that we talk about that's easy. But when we look at our lives, and then we look at the scriptures, we see in both places that this is a very important topic. Most of us are all too familiar with the experience of shame. Uh, Biblical counselor Ed Welch says it this way. I quoted this several weeks ago. Shame is a deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. In the scriptures, shame is often connected with feelings of being an outsider, being exposed, feeling unclean. Brene Brown, who's an author and a researcher at the University of Houston, she uh, defines it this way. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed, therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. And I don't need to to belabor this point because most of us know that feeling so well, that voice in our head that screams out, you don't matter, you don't have what it takes, you don't belong, and you never will. And you're like, well, but we're church people. You know, we are people who believe the gospel. We're the people who sing mighty to save. And we understand our God is a God that moves mountains. We are the people who believe the gospel. Why do I still feel so much shame? Like why, when I make a mistake, is it not like I need to repent but I feel like, no, I'm a terrible person with no future and no value. Why is it that when I make a mistake as a parent, I move so quickly to, I'm a bad dad? Why is that? Why is it when I don't preach a great sermon, I move from, well, I could do better next week, to, you're a bad pastor? You guys know that, right? You guys know that experience? Perhaps we have understood what Jesus has done and we've understood the gospel and we've understood that he forgives our sin, taking care of our guilt, but maybe we haven't learned how the gospel actually covers our shame. So maybe we're living with shame that Jesus died to cover. And a few weeks back, we looked at the book of Genesis, and we saw where shame came from in the Garden of Eden. We need to move into the New Testament and learn how Jesus frees us from living in our shame. And a great place for us to look today is Hebrews chapter 12. So if you have your Bible, go to Hebrews 12. The, uh, the author is speaking to a weary church, a church that has been beaten 
down, a church that is ready to give up, a church that understood what it's like to live with shame. And this is what the author says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This text gives us a framework for dealing with shame because it shows us how Jesus dealt with shame. The text tells us that Jesus despised the shame. And that is very interesting language. Not talking to you. Very interesting language here. (laughs) To despise the shame. Some translations say scorn shame. Others say disregard shame. He's talking about an intentional act that Jesus made. This was not a byproduct on the way to something else. It was intentional. It was decisive. It was proactive. When Jesus was going to the cross, he was looking shame right in the face, and he was going after it. Jesus did not ignore the shame which is what many of us are tempted to do, well, maybe if we just don't talk about it or acknowledge it, maybe if I just push it down, and I'm not talking a little bit down, like all the way down, maybe this thing's never gonna come back up again. Jesus didn't ignore the shame. He looked it in the face. Jesus also didn't indulge shame. He didn't let shame distract him from his Purpose. He never allowed shame to soak into his core identity. Jesus knew the shame that was attached to death on the cross. And he didn't pretend like it wasn't there, nor did he let it distract him from his purpose. He acknowledged it. He looked at it, looked at it in the face, and he scorned it. And what this text does for us is give give us a framework for dealing with our shame. And I just need to very quickly say this is not three steps to overcoming your shame. I wish it was, but it's just not that simple. It doesn't work that way. But this text gives us a starting point. How do we get moving? How do we start to deal with it? And it starts, the text tells us, with our attention. Setting our attention on Jesus. We live in an attention economy. The most valuable commodity is our attention. We live in the age of algorithms that are designed to distract us, designed to keep our attention because they know what we give our attention to gets our hearts, eventually gets our minds, and for them, eventually gets our wallets. Long before the iPhone, shame knew how to keep our attention. Shame 
deals with, deals in distraction. Shame knows how to draw our hearts away from God, away from his truth, away from his story, away from his grace, away from his mercy, away from his love, and distract us with another narrative. Where we see in the scriptures the narrative that God made us with a purpose, that he loves us, that we were made in his image with inherent dignity, value, and worth, shame distracts us with another narrative. You don't matter. No one cares about you. When we look in the scripture and we see that God made us for a good purpose, that he's given us gifts, that he's filled us with the Holy Spirit and he wants to use us. Shame distracts us and begins spinning another narrative. You don't have what it takes. Sit down. You never will have what it takes. If you put yourself out there, you are going to get hurt again. You're going to be embarrassed. You're going to take that risk. You're going to follow Jesus. You're going to use your gifts, and you are going to humiliate yourself. Would you just sit on the sidelines? And the narrative that God has for our lives all of a sudden gets really murky because our attention has been shifted away to shame. So it's no surprise we get to this chapter in Hebrews, and the command is simple. Look to Jesus. And you're like, that's it? Well, that's where we start. We have to redirect our attention Because shame has distracted us in this other narrative, and we have to reset our gaze on something else. So if we're going to run the race that God has set out for us, we have to set our attention on Jesus. As I've said before, the scriptures have a lot to say about shame. In fact, there's 10 times more material on shame in the Bible than there is about guilt. But everything the Bible says about shame converges on the person of Jesus Christ. So when we look at Jesus' life, when we set our attention on him, in regards to shame, what do we see? Well, first we see that Jesus pursued the shamed. The problem here is what examples do I use? Because they are everywhere, every single page of the gospel. Jesus is intentionally seeking out somebody who has experienced a great deal of shame. Look at Jesus' mission statement, Luke chapter 4. This is what Jesus' life purpose was. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who have been oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Who is Jesus going after? The outcasts, the rejected, those who feel like they don't belong, the shamed of society. He says, I am coming for you. I'm coming for your freedom. Think about the life of Jesus. Think about all the stories that we love to tell and we love to read about Jesus. Who was he dealing with? Think about the woman at the well. Here's a woman who lived in isolation, away from her community. Here's a woman who lived with the shame of multiple relational failures. 
Jesus goes after her at the well and offers her living water. <clears throat> How about the man who was born blind? In that culture, it was assumed that if you were born blind, that either you sinned or your parents sinned. So they were bad or you were bad. Either way, there was a ton of shame involved in the story. But Jesus doesn't just heal the man of his blindness. He wants to lift him out of his shame. And not just his shame, the shame of the entire community. The story started. The disciples looked at Jesus. They said, who sinned? This guy or his parents? And Jesus wants to recast the entire narrative. Or think about the woman who was healed from the flow of blood. Remember this story? Jesus is on his way to heal somebody else. He's walking through a crowd, and um, there's a woman who has been sick for 12 years with a flow of blood, and she reached out and grabbed the hem of Jesus' garment. And Jesus is walking through the crowd, and he's like, time out. Someone touched me. And Jesus, our disciples are like, Jesus, we're in a hurry. Everyone's touching you. And he's like, no, someone touched me. And so he, took, he turns around to the crowd and he's like, who touched me? And the woman is hiding in shame. She wanted a to-go miracle. Like, can I just grab Jesus and like get the healing? But I don't, I gotta, I'm, shame has got me covered. I, I've been living in shame for 12 years. I've been living away from the community for 12 years. I'm ready to get healed and to go. But Jesus didn't just heal her. He wanted to lift her out of her shame. He says, daughter giving her dignity and value and worth. Your faith has healed you. Think about Peter. Remember Peter? He's the guy at the end of Jesus' life. Jesus is like, hey, who's gonna ride with me? Who are my people? Jesus, Peter's like, I'm the guy. I am that guy. I promise you, if, if the stuff happens, if stuff goes down tonight, I'm your guy. And then like a couple hours later, he's in front of a fire with like a teenage girl. And he's like, I promise, I do not know Jesus. And after the death of Jesus, and, and I mean, Peter's leave, living with a ton of shame. I mean, you abandoned your best friend in his greatest moment of need. And Jesus goes after Peter. On the beach, he makes him some fish and he says, Peter, do you love me? What he's doing here is not just like giving Peter a lunch. What he's doing is restoring Peter. He's saying, Peter, I have a plan for you. Feed my lambs. Peter, I have a purpose for you. Peter, you're not defined by the shame of that rejection. I have a new plan for you. And of course, we could, we could tell stories about Jesus pursuing the shamed all day long. He pursued the shame, but he did more than that. He carried our shame. He would not just go after those who had experienced shame. He would become shamed and destitute on our behalf. And we begin to swim in deeper waters here. So would you just stay connected for a moment? Jesus was born to an unwed teenage mom in a culture where that carried a ton of shame. So yes, we know it was a miraculous birth. Yes, we know that it was the Holy Spirit, but that didn't stop the community from whispering. Shame. Jesus grew up in a working class family in the middle of nowhere town of Nazareth. This was not the place where people of great achievement, success, or power came from. In fact, Jesus started his ministry and the crowd said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
shame. We think about Jesus' ministry. He gathered 12 disciples. One of them betrayed him to his death. 11 others ran away in his moment of need. Shame. Then, of course, we know that Jesus' life ended on a Roman cross. Stripped naked, hung between two thieves, in public for everyone to see. Not just death. Shame. Ed Welch said it this way. The shame of the world was distilled to its most concentrated form and washed over Jesus. The crucifixion was not the tragic end of an otherwise charmed life. It was the logical conclusion of the shame he voluntarily accumulated from the moment of his birth. Jesus was carrying our shame. But it doesn't stop there. If we're setting our attention on Jesus, we see something else. Jesus overcame shame on our behalf. Remember, when Jesus started his public ministry, two things happened. He got baptized by John the Baptist, and the Father out of heaven boomed these words over Jesus. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Those were the words that propelled Jesus into his ministry. And then what happened? He immediately went from hearing the booming affirmation of his father into the wilderness, where the great enemy, Satan himself, began to tempt Jesus. And if you notice, every temptation has to do with shame. Every temptation is trying to... um, Every temptation is trying to bring doubt into Jesus' mind over what God had declared him to be. Well, Satan says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Translation, come on, Jesus. Do you really have what it takes? Does God really love you? Because if God really loved you, why are you hungry? Jesus, do you really have the power? Prove it. Do you hear the shame? Jesus, you don't have what it takes. Jesus, you are not enough. But with every temptation, can I borrow that? Thank you. Appreciate that, Kyle. That's my guy. With every temptation, Jesus says it is written. We might translate, God says... Satan, here's what I hear you saying. You're trying to spin the narrative of shame, but it is written. I know the truth of God. I am setting my attention on God's voice. It's no coincidence that the enemy used shame to target Jesus. It's the weapon he's been using since Eden. And it's no coincidence that these temptations came right after Jesus heard the boom affirmation of his father. In his moment of temptation, Jesus remembered his father's voice. Satan accused, you don't have what it takes. 
God says, I am well pleased with you. Satan whispers, you don't belong. God says, you are my beloved son. Jesus did not live in shame. He lived in the freedom of his father's affirmation. So when we set our attention on Jesus, what do we see? In our shame, he is pursuing us. This is the beautiful part about the gospel. When we are living in shame, we want to hide. We want to isolate. We want um, to not use our gifts. We don't want to put ourselves out there. But then when we look up, we see the God of the universe is pursuing us with his love and his grace and his mercy. He's not standing far off. He's not distant. He's not removed. In fact, in our moments of shame, Jesus himself is leaning in. He's reminding us of the words of our Father. If we're in Christ, the words that God spoke over Jesus, he speaks over us. You are mine. You're my beloved son. I'm delighted in you. And you're like, well, what a, that doesn't make any sense. Because, I mean, I, you don't know my life, I, my sin, my struggles. I mean, if I were looking at my own life, I wouldn't say, man, I'm proud of that guy. Well, you're not God. You don't have the compassion in the heart of God. He's far more compassionate than you are, even towards yourself. Do we know that voice? Or are we more familiar with the voice of shame? But it doesn't end there. We keep moving. We see not only do we start with setting our attention on Jesus, we move forward by being vulnerable in community. We set our attention on Jesus, his life, his death, and resurrection, but we cannot do that alone. The text begins not with a command. The text begins with an assumption, and the assumption is that we're not in this alone. The author of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, He's saying, when you're running the race of life, you are surrounded. You're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before you, the great heroes of the faith, but you are also surrounded by the brothers and sisters running with you, the people in this room, the people in your Bible study, community group, your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are surrounded, and God designed it that way. If we're going to move out of shame, it is a corporate effort. Notice the text says, since we, therefore, let us. Since we are surrounded by a greater cloud of witnesses, let us throw aside the weight. Let us put our, fix our eyes on Jesus. We do it corporately, together, communally. It's a collective exercise. But that's what love is. The commandment in the New Testament for the church is to love one another. 
And to love is vulnerability in community. Love is not you pretending to be a certain way in front of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love is not curating yourself in front of your friends. Love is vulnerability. As C.S. Lewis said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Some of your dogs have your hearts. Joking. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And everything in us is going to want to push against that. Everything in us is going to want to stay on the surface level. Everything in us is going to want to avoid somebody going too deep into our hearts because we feel exposed. We feel like Adam and Eve did in Eden. We feel like we got to cover up. But if we're going to move past our shame, we're going to have to be known by another person. Shame is going to flourish in the dark in isolation, and in hiding. So the question I have for you today is, who is your us? <laughs> Let us fix our attention on Jesus. Let us throw aside the weights and the distractions. Who is your us? Who knows your heart? Who knows your shame? Do you have anybody in your life who really knows you? This does not mean sharing everything with everybody. Just let me just say that. <laughs> That's not healthy. We're talking about one or two trusted brothers or sisters in Christ who you can be the real you with. You can share your shame with, and that trusted brother or sister does not reject you. Hello. But they bring you alongside them, they love you, they serve you, they remind you of the truths of the gospel, they say, I am with you, we will get through this together, and they walk with you. And it's a picture of what God does with us, it's meant to be happening in the body. But we all hate it, I know, I hate it. But it's the path towards freedom. Finally, when we become a people who are practicing setting our attention on Jesus, and we become a people who are vulnerable in a community, what happens is that our stories begin to get reframed. The stories of our lives are reframed in light of God's grace. And I love uh, in this chapter, Jesus is described as the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the author. He's the one that started the story. He's the one that's going to finish the story. He has a good plan for your life. He hasn't given up on you. In fact, he's just getting started. And that is what grace does. It doesn't throw out the old us, where it's like, man, that was garbage. God's starting over. No. 
He takes us beautifully created by God in his image and he restores us. That is grace. Think about Peter again. What is it like, Peter? Well, you had your chance. You blew it. And I really needed to. So you just live in that shame for the rest of your life. No. He's like, Peter, I just need you to reframe your story. You are not Peter who failed me in my time of need. Not who you are. You are Peter who will lead my church and feed my lambs. The woman who was healed from the flow of blood. Hey, you're not the sick lady anymore. You are daughter. So let's just reframe the story. Let's reframe the narrative in light of God's grace. Would you allow me to read you a very long quote? So maybe you checked out for just a moment, maybe check right back in. Um, This quote so beautifully articulates the way grace and shame interact with each other. When we begin walking in freedom in the story of grace, shame is going to fight back because shame and grace are mortal enemies. Here's what James K.A. Smith, the philosopher, says. Shame is the nefarious enemy of grace that thrives on the backward glance. Shame keeps craning our necks to look at our past with downcast eyes as a life to regret. Grace lives off the truth of God's wonder-working mercy. My past, my story, is taken up into God and God's story. Grace is the good news of unfathomable possibility. Let me read that again. Grace is the good news of unfathomable possibility. Shame teaches me to look at my past, see something hideous that makes me regret my existence. In grace, God looks at my past and sees the sketch of the work of art that he wants to finish painting and show to the world. In the hands of such an artist, all my weaknesses are openings for strength, the proverbial cracks that let the light in. Because of my past, God's renewing spirit can birth in me insights, empathy, attention that are exactly what someone needs in the world. Grace is not a time machine. Grace is not a reset button. Grace is something even more unbelievable. It is restoration. It's reconciliation of and despite our histories of animosity. Grace isn't undoing, it is overcoming. And I know that was a mouthful, but I love the imagery that he's using for grace. What if your life was not a piece of garbage that God wants to throw away? It's like, man, what's what's wrong with you? What if your life was a piece of art that God delights to show to the world? What if he's taken the brokenness? What if he's taken the shame? What if he's taken even the worst parts that we've tried to keep hitting and his grace is transforming them into a beautiful work of art for his glory and the good of the world? Because that's what the gospel tells us. That's the good news. The stories are yet to be written. Shame wants you to crane your neck looking back. Grace wants you to look to the future, the beautiful things that God is doing with your life. I love the way Isaiah says it. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame 
of your youth. God is taking the ashes and he's turning them into beauty. He's taking what's old and he's making something new. He's taking our shame and he's turning it into glory. Romans 10, 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, when we put our, our life in God's hand, we are putting our life in our trusted father's care. And the story he's writing is not one of shame, it's one of glory. Romans 5, 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Oh, there's so much hope. There's so much hope, and the future is not one of shame for you, brother or sister in Christ, because God's love, the very love of the Father, has been dumped into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Think about what Paul said, that we, are, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Something, a beautiful piece of art with God's spirit living inside of us, transforming us into the beautiful image of Jesus. He's not done with us yet. The story is still being written. He has good plans for you. And if we keep letting shame spin a different narrative, we're always going to stay in hiding. We're never going to use our gifts and the body is going to miss out. The community is going to miss out. Your workplace is going to miss out. Your apartment is going to miss out because we're living in shame when Jesus has died for us to live in freedom. And more than freedom, joy. It was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, the joy of you and me knowing him. And we could talk all day about God's grace. He is mighty to save. He is the one that still moves mountains. The question is, which story are we going to believe today? Are we going to believe the story of the gospel where Jesus pursues us with his love? Not only did he live for us, not only did he pursue us, he died for us, he rose on our behalf, and he's offering us the invitation of his grace? Or are we going to believe the other narrative, the one the enemy whispers to us in our weakness? Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks and we give you praise Oh, we want to be your sons and daughters living in freedom and joy. We want to know with clarity the voice of our Father. We want to hear loud and clear the words of the Father. You are my beloved. You're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. May we know that we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We've been made new. We're new creations in him. We have been united with Christ by faith. So when the enemy whispers... This week, tonight, tomorrow morning, God, help us to discern. Help us to identify the shame, to be vulnerable in community, to set our attention on you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.